Welcome to the Joy in Purpose podcast. My name is Lola Shodunke. I am a doctoral student in a psychology program. Joy in Purpose is a podcast dedicated to conversations about purpose, career development, and mental health. I also interview individuals as they share their purpose stories. I would like to remind our listeners that this podcast is not a replacement for therapy. Information shared on this platform is for educational purposes only. Thank you for listening. Today's interview is with Laura Padgett. Laura is an amazing storyteller and I really enjoyed hearing her story of giving her life to Christ and overcoming trauma. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Laura is a multi-published, multi-awarded author and dancer. Her two non-fiction books, Dolores, Like the River, and Jesus in Shorts, 25 Short Stories of Life-Changing Jesus Moments, her among her many published works. With a passion for helping others see their worth and value through the lens of Jesus, she shares stories of God's love and lessons in her journey of over decades as a writer, dancer, and teacher. Laura is a wife, mother, grandmother, and proud native of Colorado, who lives in Montrose, Colorado, with her husband, Keith. She holds a master's degree in storytelling through creative movement from Regis University. Welcome to the Joy and Purpose podcast, Laura. I am so happy to have you here. So I always say this maybe because I'm a psychology nerd. I'm in a graduate program for psychology, but I always like to start the interview by asking individuals where they were born and for them to tell us their favorite childhood memory. Yes, I think that's a great way to start. And thank you for having me. Uh, It's very exciting. I, I like what you're doing here. And it's important work that we're doing because it feels like it's part of a healing ministry. And that's important. I was born in Denver, Colorado, and I lived in the Mile High City for most of my life. I think if I really, really have to think hard about (laughs) my favorite childhood memory, there were two that came to my mind and I couldn't decide. So I thought maybe each of them might be of value. One is that we used to travel over to the Western Slope of Colorado, which is where I now live, but to a place called Grand Junction. And my aunt lived over there, my father's sister, Aunt Carmi, and she was an absolute scream. She was such a funny lady. And she had this habit whenever us girls came to visit, we were her only nieces and uh, that were little, the rest were all grown up. And she was such a comedian. She developed this way to take a fresh whole chicken, use wires and make this chicken dance. And us kids rolled on the ground. To this day, we talk about that chicken dancing. And every time I see a raw whole chicken I just can't help it. I think about Aunt Carmi and how we just, it was just a belly laugh because she would make it do pirouettes and it was insane, but she really had quite the gift with chicken dancing. And then my other favorite memory um, is going to my Uncle Joe and Cousin Margie's house. So Uncle Joe was a widower and his daughter lived 
in his home and took care of him. And uh, Margie could cook Italian food like nobody I've ever known. And our family is half Italian, or I'm half Italian. My father was full-blood Italian. And you walk into that little house in North Denver, and the smell was just so wonderful. And I would go in there, and it was just like, wow, this was the best thing ever. And we would have spaghetti, well, linguine and meatballs and sausage. And they were served, it was all served on these beautiful blue and white courier and I plates. And I always placed myself where I could see what we call a hutch, China hutch. And in that hutch were at least 50 dolls with crocheted dresses, umbrellas. And my Aunt Mary had done that. She had crocheted dresses for all those beautiful dolls. So I could sit there and eat my linguine, my sausage, my meatballs, my fresh baked Italian bread and look at those dolls. Nice. Lovely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's amazing the people in our lives and it's like the everyday things or the things you do during holidays that stay with you. And it's just them being themselves. That was it. And that was just not every Sunday, but, you know, usually a couple a month, we would go see Uncle Joe and and Cousin Margie. And it was, it was, uh, it was absolutely wonderful. And I was thinking about that. You know, I'm glad you asked me that question, Lola, because I haven't thought about that in years. Mm -hmm. And as we talk a little bit more about my childhood, I think one of my biggest pieces of uh, my life today is extracting the good from what happened in my life. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what God wants us to do. Extract the good, yeah. not ignore the bad. We can learn from the bad. We can dismiss the temptation to repeat it. Mm-hmm. But primarily, he does want us to be happy and whole. And there were a lot of good things about my childhood. So they're starting to come forward now at 70 years old. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, definitely. Otherwise, if we just focus on the bad only, that's a way to be depressed and it will definitely make the devil happy not that people want to be depressed but um life has its own challenges and just focusing on the good can really uh, change our perspective so as a almost 70 year old yes ma'am yeah when you look over your life in your childhood again what was your favorite activity or passion as a child some of my guests have mentioned painting or reading. What was that activity that you enjoyed to do as a child? Well, I was always moving, uh, which is what led me into being a dancer and a dance coach. But I think for me, gosh, just playing outside with my sisters, I always loved to be outside, whether it was cold or warm. And in Denver, you know, they can get some snow. You've seen that this year. It's been an absolute uh, blizzard. of the winter, but being outside, playing with my sisters and listening to my father and my mother tell stories. My mother was Celtic, so she was um, Scottish and Irish. They have a tremendous oral history because please remember the Irish and the Scots. Uh, Scots are still occupied, but the Irish were occupied for centuries. And so the way they kept their history and their culture alive was orally through storytelling and also through their dance and music. But I, my father was Italian. He was Sicilian and Italian, and there is a differentiation there. 
he could tell stories like nobody I ever met. He would have an entire group of little kids sitting and believing that he, in his 40s and 50s, was really only seven and quite tall for his age. He was hysterical. And he would tell these stories that were wonderful, as, as would my mother. Um, one of my favorite stories on my blog was about my mother and, and the cat, uh, her crazy cat that used to just drive her nuts. And she tried several times to make friends with the cat. Cat didn't like her. But anyway, it's one of those things where your parents could keep you entertained with what was really true and what had happened in their lives, where they were from. Uh, my father was, they were both from Grand Junction, Colorado, and um, how they met and lots of different stuff. So I think those are some of my favorite memories, being outside playing with my sisters and just hanging out with Papa and Mama and listening to these wild stories that some were true, but who knows how many <laughs> cares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who cares? They were very gifted, both of them in that regard. And dancers, they were dancers too. So I came by that, honestly, I think. Yeah. Nice. And I'm very sure that's also part of your favorite childhood memory. Yeah. 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 So when I contacted you, we got in touch with each other for you to Mm -hmm. be a guest on this podcast. Yes. You shared that you wanted to share with the audience. Yes. About um, growing up with parents who were addicted to alcohol. Yes. So I have an idea of maybe the things of your childhood because yeah. I'm, I'm a clinician and I work with, I've worked with clients who have parents addicted to alcohol. I've also worked with people that are struggling with trying to overcome this addiction. Um, so I can kind of imagine what it was. And uh, can you please share with us what it was like growing up with parents addicted to alcohol? Sure. I think if you have ever heard the phrase walking with one foot on the curb and one in the gutter, the instability, the chaos, the fear. But before I get into any of that, Lola, it's very important for people to know that I love my parents. I am not dissing my parents. I am not uh, breaking their anonymity. They are passed away now. But I believe that God has called me to share this story from victim to victor, from tears to triumph. Because we can, we can recover from these effects, which we're going to talk about. But growing up, you know, children don't know what they don't know. None of us know what we don't know. And that's part of also being 70 years old is God humbly reminds it every day, tells me to humble myself and say, I don't know. I I don't know. Three of the most freeing words in the world. I don't know. But I really believe that in looking back... To me, it was just normal to come home and they're fighting and they're drinking and uh, the domestic violence that accompanied that on both sides and not ever knowing exactly what I was coming home to. Could never have kids over for a sleepover. Oh, no, that would never happen. And additionally, my father was a World War II veteran who had been in Northern Africa on the front lines as a munitions expert, guns. Um... And he was severely affected by that. Um, the, they called it shell shock in those days. They call it PTSD, although I've heard now there's other names too. And I don't keep up on all of that. But what I can tell you is there was so much of an attitude, atmosphere, and environment of illness on many levels. 
And so I just grew up not knowing who I was, what I was, what was going to happen the next day. And I lived in fear because the, uh, I, I can't say they were physically abusive, although my dad took out after us a couple times with things that would be considered physical abuse today. But the verbal abuse, the constant blaming, you know, if it wasn't for these kids, I wouldn't drink. That's so common in alcoholic families. It just is. And you believe it. I mean, these are your folks. Yeah. They're like right next to God in terms of what they, their authority and uh, you, you depended. I was dependent, of course, upon them, as were my sisters. There was not much spirituality in our family. And that was as a result of, in those days, it would be considered a religious mixed marriage because my father was one faith, my mother was another. My father had married my mother, who was a divorcee. And so us kids were simply not welcome in either the one or the other church. And we heard that. So there wasn't that foundation to run to. So it was just, I think, every day trying to stay alive, trying to stay out of trouble, mm -hmm. trying to do the very best I could to not promote their, their drinking and their fighting. But I couldn't, and I didn't know that till I grew up. So blaming, shaming, all those things come forth. And you know that as a professional counselor. So that's the way it was. And I'm really glad that you decided to share your story because there's people that grow up with a certain level of dysfunction in the family yeah. and they carry that into adulthood. Uh, and then it, it was a part of their childhood. So it's like normal to them. I have a question. When did you realize that your family was different from like other family? When did you realize, oh, alcohol, alcohol is a big problem in your family because maybe you realize that other families were not dealing with what you were dealing with at home. I was in my 20s, I believe, but I didn't blame the alcohol. I didn't know what was wrong. I know that many of my girlfriends, if I went over for a sleepover, their families weren't like that. There wasn't fighting and, and there wasn't fear Mm -hmm. There wasn't going to bed at night and waiting to wake up to furniture crashing upstairs. And I couldn't understand why my family was one way and theirs was another. But to tell you the truth, one of the gifts of being this age is I don't really remember a lot of that. I don't. I don't. But that's healing too. Christ has healed me from a lot of those wounds. There are scars there and they'll always be there. And I treasure them as beauty because they can go forward now and help other people, I hope, to heal. And just like you, that's what my mission is in this life. So I think I just must have been in my, gosh, 26, 27, when I first realized I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And I was working, I actually had moved where I live now, Montrose, Colorado. And I had a job. I could never hold on to a job, Lola, because I was just an angry little gal. Mm. And I always tell people, <laughs> I don't run around getting in a lot of fights now, but if somebody's going to super, super, super challenge me on something, I always let them know, uh, you know, I don't want to fight with anybody, but uh, I have, I grew up in the streets. I was on my own practically when I was 15, 16 years old. I am Irish and Italian. I have a black belt and tongue and an education. So be real careful, mm -hmm. softly, softly, mm -hmm. friend. 
but I don't like to get into those situations anymore. I used to thrive on them because I was really good. I was a good fighter. Now I'm a warrior and there's a big difference. I'm a warrior for Christ and for justice, social justice, but I'm not, I'm not going to duke it out with anybody. Now I'm going to stand down and walk away because that's what sometimes I think is best because I'm not afraid of losing. I'm afraid of the cost to my witness Mm -hmm. in winning. Oh, that's good. And I can be mean. I can be mean. I know how to stay alive and I don't, I don't like that part of me, but God will use it every now and then to say, Hey, ho, let's back it up. And, um, I think what happens in those situations, you learn how to fight for your life. Mm. You learn how to fight for your life. So dishonesty was a huge piece of my MO because I could lie. Oh, my friend, can I lie? I am one of the best liars I know because oftentimes shifting blame could be the difference between, you know, being smacked around, uh, being ostracized, mm-hmm. ignored. Mm-hmm. Those were all tactics of discipline in my family. So um, when I was 26, I think it was when I was 26, I w- had a job over here in Montrose and my employer said, you really are not okay. You need some help. So I went to a counselor and he introduced me to a program that could help me um, begin to heal from the wounds. And when I first went to this program, I'm like, wow. These poor suckers have really had it hard. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Not me. I'm grand. I'm doing fine. But as I kept going back and I've been in that particular recovery room for, let's see, I'm 70 now. And I think it was about 28 or 27, 28 when I started going to recovery. Uh, So I don't do well with higher math. So anyway, that's my, that's my deal. And that's how long I've been trying, working on all this stuff. I can understand what you're saying because from my research of children who grow up in alcoholic homes, they have to be resilient. Mm -hmm. Some of them have to be the adult to their parent. Mm -hmm. So I've I've read stories of children being the one to pay the bills because they have to remind mom and dad that like the light was off last month. So, okay, I'll take on the bills, like eight years old, nine years old, learning to, to pay the bills. And doing things to keep their parents out of trouble. That's right. Do you relate to any of those examples growing up? Yeah. Yeah. And I can give you one. And I'm not ashamed to give you this. Um, My father and mother were out one night. Uh, My older sister was about 12. So she was in charge of my younger sister and me. And uh, all of a sudden, at like two o'clock in the morning, here came the folks and Papa woke us up and he started chewing gum. And he said, listen, he said, uh, the police are going to come here and you tell them that we have been here all night. I'm going to bed. So he left my 12-year-old sister and me, I was 10, to tell the police that, um, no, our folks have been here all night. Well, what had happened is he was drinking, got into an accident mm. and left the scene. So the accident did not leave a demonstrable um, damage to the car. So he thought he could get by with it. So when the police came, we tried to tell them that and they didn't believe us. They were, they, you know, they walked over and touched the car, said this car, the 
you know, the hood's still warm. No, this person is not my home. So yeah, off he went to jail. So those kinds of things, which made me believe in my heart of hearts that it was my job to protect my parents, which I later grew up protecting my sisters and protecting everyone around me, mm -hmm. because yes, I am that powerful. It's called codependency. Mm -hmm. that I am the one who is responsible for their well-being. Yeah. I'm responsible if things don't go well. Um, and, and unfortunately, the other side of that is my ego says, and I'm praised when things are great in their life. Because after all, I'm the queen of the universe. Yeah. yeah. From and which I was fired, by the way. That job didn't last either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that you become resourceful when... Mm -hmm things are intense and things ex escalate, you kind of know what to do to get everything back on track. That's great. So as someone who is codependent, which, uh, like I said, it can lead to resiliency because you know how to get yourself. You, you're like kind of street, right. street smart. Yep. But then it's not good in friendships, right? Because no one wants a friend who is like a parent. That's not an equal relationship. Well, but you end up being like, a, you end up being a parent to your parents when you're young and you end up maybe attracting people who need a friend in a form of a parent. So I can imagine that's kind of one of the effects that came into your childhood. How was it like breaking yourself free of that, of no longer being the codependent friend and just being a friend? I'm very sure that was like a really hard journey to go through. Well, it's a hard journey because it calls us into something that I, 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 as I said, I was such a great liar and I could lie to myself. I mean, I could make myself believe I was five foot six and blonde. <laughs> and uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm not, um, which is fine. I'm only 4'11 and I'm sort of blonde. God's helping me to, you know, be a little more blonder every day. But I think it's an addiction in itself. I have to feel like I'm worth something. I have to feel like I'm helping. I have to feel like um, things are, are going to be okay. So therefore, I have to have somebody who isn't. Because if, if I marry a healthy person, which I did the second time around, I, the first time around, uh, my husband and I were just poorly suited. We wanted different things you know, in this life. But I was always trying to control you see, what that leads to is if I'm the queen of the universe, I'm in control of everything. I have the answers. I have the right to be in control. And being in control means most people are like, hey, take a hike. Unless they are unhealthy. Um, because some people will let you just take all the responsibility, especially if you marry addicts, which, of course, a lot of people coming out of those homes do. But I know it certainly didn't last my first marriage. And when I then began to understand after my divorce, and I had a child now, that I needed to be more intent in terms of finding my, my real life in, in Christ. And by then I was a Christian. I became a Christian at 26. But my issues did not just up and go away. You know, Christ isn't a surgeon who comes in and says, okay, go to sleep. And in the morning, you're going to wake up and everything's going to be fine. You have a few stitches, but hey, you're all, you know, everything's wonderful. And so I'm not sure, <laughs> to tell you the truth, if I can pinpoint a time when I walked into the freedom not to have to control everybody's life. Mm -hmm. When I walked into the freedom to stay in my own lane, 
when I walked in the freedom to look at the log in my eye instead of being intent upon helping you remove the speck from yours. It was years, Lola, years, decades. And I still never consider myself cured because just like an alcoholic understands, they can't hang out in a bar. I cannot hang out in situations where I'm going to feel like I have to be the guy in control. If I see somebody who's very needy, and I've had friends like that, my job is not to say, okay, just come on in. We're going to put your life back together. My job is just to love people where they are, who they are, and stay in my own darn lane. Because I don't have the answers for their problems. I don't have the information for what created them. What I do have is hopefully every day, more and more, the heart of Christ that says, hmm, well, uh, what do you think you should do about that? Or I do don't have family members now involved in, in addiction, but what I do have is the residual of the control gene. And I have to be very careful and turn that over to God every single day because you're right. It's not good for friendships. It's fatal for a marriage. It's malignant in parenting. And God, it's not healthy. God doesn't want unhealth in our life. Now today, a lot of those things, I let a lot of stuff go by that because that I would have tried to control. I mean, I would have been you know, out of my mind with control. But I also am always aware of my character defects that can jump back at me at any time and slippery slope into that horrible control, which is destructive. And when I'm saying... I'll take care of this, God. I'm saying he can't. But what does God say? I can, and you need to let me. So I need to remember that every single day. I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. And then sit back and wait. And that's not easy either. But as far as the freedom, to return to your original question, I'm not sure I'll ever consider myself free of the character defects. But I know how, I know how to recognize them. And I know how to turn them over now. Yeah. I don't do great at it all the time. Man, I fall more than I'll ever fly till I get to the other side. But yeah. Yeah. You know what I love about that? The goal of my podcast is um, joy in purpose is to basically yeah. encourage people on this journey of purpose. We're going to experience failures. We're going to experience disappointment and to just encourage people to get back up. It That's can right. be difficult but we can get back up through Christ. So I think that letting go, knowing that God is in control of everything, it, it's so it's such a powerful message that no matter what stage of life you're in, we can all relate. So no matter what age or stage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You mentioned um, your journey to Christ. And can you briefly share with us um, how you encountered Jesus Christ, because I know that this is also related to your healing um, journey. Well, when I was 26 years old, I left Denver. My father had passed away from a malignant brain tumor when I was 16. And my mother, you know, she just couldn't mother. So basically, I ran out of Denver screaming, and I took the first job I could find out of Denver, which was here in Montrose doing my specialty, my training. 
And when I got here, I just thought, well, life's just going to be like it was in Denver. You know, I'm going to drink and party because I was going down the same road. And um, I kept running into these people who had talked to me about this Jesus guy. Hmm. And I was like, mm, I knew of him. I knew of him. And I, I relate in my first book, which talks about my conversion. I relate the little girl sitting out on the fence and watching the two jet streams cross in the sky and knowing somewhere there was something. And my mom would take us to church occasionally and I'd hear about this guy. But I just really believed he didn't want anything to do with us. I mean, why would he leave us in a situation like that? And as I said, I was angry. I was bitter. I was running. I was a spiritual refugee. Mm -hmm. And as I got myself... Um, more and more convinced that that I needed to stay with these people who were talking about this Jesus character. They were at work. They were in my social circles. They were everywhere. And I met a gentleman one time who came over and talked to me about God. And I just finally, I just had had it. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. I don't want anything to do with any people. So he left. And that night I had a Damascus experience where I was raging at whoever this this God guy was and letting him know that he didn't know anything about pain, rejection, shame. He knew nothing. And I had a dream that night and woke up with such incredible pain in my wrists and my feet. And I stumbled around crying and screaming. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was sweating. Like I'd just run a race. And this gentleman that I'm telling you about had left a Bible at my house. I probably on purpose. So I got myself together and decided I wasn't having a heart attack or a stroke and got some water and sat down and I began to read in the Bible. He had marked two places. One was where they're talking about um, by his stripes, we are healed, but he is despised. And I'm like, oh, and that's paraphrased because I'm not real good at memorizing where things are in the Bible. But I went, who's striped? Who's shameful? What is this? I thought, okay, this makes no sense. But I flipped to the second marker, which was John. And that night, until the sun came up, I read the book of John. And I thought, huh, well, that's interesting. But I still wasn't convinced. And um, it was several weeks before I finally began to surrender and cry and was broken to the point where I could see, oh, yeah looks like this guy's real. Hmm. And that was, then I began my journey. But of course I knew nothing. Hmm. I didn't know anything. Um, and, and because we'd had such horrible experiences at church with you're not wanted, you're not good enough, you're illegitimate, whatever, you're outside the family of God. Trying to get me to church was a real challenge for a couple of my friends, but they did. And it was there at church that I met the woman who had helped me on this road. And her name was Dolores. And she was my mentor for 35 years. Wow. Yeah. She lived to be over 100 in this town that I now live in, in a house. <laughs> I live in a house that's not very far from where Dolores lived. And um, yeah, that's why I can honestly say when I left Denver and I came to Montrose, back to Montrose, I came home. This mm -hmm. is where I was saved. This is where I met Jesus. This is truly where my life began, even at 26, over a quarter of a century. That is so beautiful. I never told that story out loud to a lot of people because I thought nobody's ever going to believe this. Um, 
And then I told it to a friend of mine when I, we read about, I had never even told it to either one of my husbands. Um, my husband I'm married to now, I met in church and he's a very healthy, lovely, wonderful, uh, committed to Christ gentleman and has been wonderful in my life. He's totally the opposite of me. You know, he's uh, very calm, very methodical, very logical. And I'm the ever ready bunny on too much espresso. And so we are opposites, but I like to think, you know, um, he keeps me centered and I teach him to fly. So it works. It works. That's beautiful. I, and I love your story of how God healed you from the effect of growing up in a very, would you say traumatic household? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Chaotic, uh, traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. And so because, like I said, people who grew up in that kind of household are one of the most resilient people you ever work with, even as yeah. a, as a therapist. But then there's also the other consequences of that, of <laughs> engaging with friends who are, would they end up being in a codependent relationship with? Correct. Some of them struggle with making friends of being too independent that they push everybody out. That's right. But God continues to heal you from that. Cause you yes. said you're still on the journey. And then also to have the journey of knowing Christ. Exactly. Because there are people who are able to you know, go to therapy and work on those issues and they learn the coping skills that I can teach them. But also that balance of the relationship with Christ, yeah. the center of it all yeah. uh, is truly beautiful. Well, the soul is so damaged. Mm-hmm. You know, you come out and the, you know, you, yeah, I think you can. Uh, heal from and understand. And part of my journey was to understand the disease of alcoholism. This was not a choice. My parents didn't wake up when they were, you know, 15, 16. So he said, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I'd like to be an alcoholic because it is, it is a family disease. It is a disease. And um, in those days, the fifties and sixties, my father died in 1968. I was only 16 when he passed away, but there just was some help, um, but there wasn't what there is now. And yeah. it was such a shame-based disease, like it was their choice. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. Um, it is the choice to reach out for recovery. And I'm going to give you that. That's true. As I had the choice to reach out to recovery or to you know keep going along. And I, I knew something that's not the way I wanted to live. But when it comes to healing the soul, there's only one. There's only one that can do that, the great physician. And um, that little soul has, uh, again, a continuous work. In fact, you know what I did this year, Lola? I decided, let me do a Facebook Live about this, I hope, in a couple of days. I decided that I just make God too complicated. So I started reading children's Bible. <laughs> I love it because I'm only 4'11". So any chair I sit in, except for my uh, living room chairs, which are what we call hobbit chairs, uh, my feet, my feet don't touch the ground. So I could sit there and swing my legs and pop my gum and I could read my children's Bible. And it's like being with my daddy. And it's in language that my little child person can, can understand a little more because what's happened right now in our world is the traumas for those of us who have grown up in these situations, I mean, it's been a terrible, traumatic few years, but the abuse, the trauma, the fear, the uncertainty, the control, the shaming, 
all the things that have come in the last several years, well, I'm going to say the last couple of decades it's been going on, but COVID did a number. And it did a number not only on, on uh, people who could cope, but on people whose coping skills are tenuous based upon stability. Um, so I've revisited a lot of the traumas due to what we've seen. And I'm, I'm not the only one. And I'm not saying poor me. So don't sing, you know, don't sing the poor, poor, pitiful me thing. But I think people who have a history, we always live in PTSD. Mm-hmm. And we always have to recognize um, years ago, there was a beautiful, beautiful jazz singer named uh, Ella Fitzgerald, and she did an advertisement. You should look this up. It's really interesting for a company called Memorex. And Memorex made tapes, uh, you know, cassette tapes, which a lot of people don't know about. But uh, she and what this ad was is uh, Mr. Gerald Fitzgerald would stand about 50 yards and she could hit this pitch that was so pure. She had the purest voice and she would shatter a piece of crystal. Boom. Wow. Well, then they recorded her voice and they would play the tape and the tape would shatter because it was supposed to be so good. So one of the things when I speak to recovering groups, I do a lot of speaking for recovery groups. And one of the things I say is you always have to ask yourself, is this real or is this Memorex? Hmm. Is this a recorded message that is so vivid that it is affecting me as if I were living through it again today? And I lived, uh, I had to keep asking myself that, Lola, is this real or is this Memorex? Honoring what I felt. See, that's another thing that has to happen in recovery. We have to come to terms with what we're feeling. Feelings may not be facts, but doggone it, they're feelings. And to get those out there in an honest way and lay them before the Lord. And then we can begin to heal. So I just got things kind of jumbled up again in the last year. And I, like everyone else, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we can live in faith, not fear, faith, not fear. Um, I, I think that's wonderful if you can. But I have a background where sometimes I can fall back into the fear. And I... I have been shamed for that by some people, unfortunately, but I say, no, this is where I am and I'm going to take it to the Lord. I don't need to act out of the fear now. See, there's the difference. Before the healings, I would have acted out of the fear. I don't have to act out of fear, but I need to acknowledge that it's here and I need to hand it to the one who can handle it because I can't. And I was making things so complicated And God finally said, you just need to come to me as a little child. So I went and got me a little children's Bible on my phone. (laughs) And it's very simple. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Thanks. And on my way. Yeah. Nice. I feel like that's a great way to to wrap up this episode. um, Because it's it's an encouragement to to folks that are listening. I hope so. Uh, so as we wrap up, you mentioned that you started a blog. I want you to share with the audience where we can connect with you on social media, whether it's your blog, any platforms, because I'm very sure a lot of people are touched by your story. I would like to follow up with you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd love for them to, and I'd love for them to come to me and tell me their story too. So my website is Laura, L-A-U-R-A-L, Paget, P-A-D-G-E-T-T. And on there, it says, my tagline is stories of inspiration and transformation. 
And so I have a blog there called Living What You're Given. And that is really what I do. That's my, that's my handle. That's my brand, if you will. I'm living what I've been given, all of it, because there's so much that I can share with other people, especially now as a, as a senior citizen, an elder, as my darling indigenous Native American friends call us little old people now. Um, and I just, I love being an elder because I can speak not with authority. I speak of no authority. I speak from the one who has authority um, in, in the healing messages. So that's that's where you could probably uh, reach me to see my blog. That's my writing. I try to blog or do a video a couple times a month. On Facebook, you can reach me at Laura L. Paget, author, speaker, and dancer. And that's who I am. I have also uh, learned to dance uh, a lot of, uh, I've, that's a whole nother world there. On Instagram, I am Laura Paget author. And on Twitter, I'm at Laura Lee Padgett. I'm not on Twitter much. I don't like Twitter too much. Um, and I'm just now learning Instagram. So those are the places you can reach me. And uh, my contact information is on my website. Um, and it also talks about the two books I wrote. One is called Dolores Like the River, which is exactly what we've been talking about. This woman who flowed in my life and helped me walk the walk after I, um, after Jesus found me and saved me. He, well, he always knew where I was, but I was kind of a wild child. And then um, the second one, which came out in 2018, is Jesus in Shorts, 25 short stories of life-changing Jesus moments, and that they reflect my entire life. My life as dancer and uh, also speaker. Yeah. Nice. That is so amazing. And I will make sure to include all of that in the show notes. Thank you for coming on. I really Thank appreciate you. this opportunity. I, I hope we can keep in touch. And if I can ever, you know, I, I just hope if I ever get my podcast up, you'll come and talk with me too. Yes? Absolutely. All yeah, right. that would be amazing. Well, bless you, my darling, and bless your, your listeners out there. And just the thing is, you got to be living what you're given. But there's yeah, hope. Absolutely. Always hope. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I want you to know that you are valuable. You have purpose within you. Don't forget to rate and review Joy in Purpose podcast on all podcast platforms. Enjoy your day. Peace.